Welcome back. It's been a few weeks. I've been on a family vacation, so my apologies for not posting any episodes on the podcast feed. Uh, Today we're going to continue our journey through the Parsha uh, of the week. We are on Parsha Bashalach, and the title of this week's essay is Renewable Energy, and it's from Rabbi Sachs' book, Studies in Spirituality. And before I begin, I just want to mention that I had the chance during my vacation to read one of the earlier books that Rabbi Sachs had written called Will We Have Jewish Grandchildren? Jewish Continuity and How to Achieve It. And really I found the arguments in his book fascinating. I think it's the um, best book I've seen on identifying the challenges for continuity in the Jewish people and how to address it. And I, I wasn't aware of this, but Rabbi Sachs had essentially made this book into a uh, the, the point of this book was essentially a thesis on how to address these issues and the call to action for creating a organization to continue Jewish continuity. Uh, simply enough, the name of that organization was Jewish Continuity, and I reached out to the CEO of that organization, and he'll be a guest in the upcoming weeks on the podcast. I want to share one paragraph here that Rabbi Sachs talks about when he's addressing an argument about intermarriage. And it's I'm quoting as followed. To be a Jew is to be a member of the people of the covenant, an heir to one of the world's most ancient, enduring, and awe-inspiring faiths, it is to inherit a way of life which has earned the admiration of the world for its love of family, its devotion to education, its philanthropy, its social justice, and its infinitely loyal dedication to a unique destiny. It is to know that this way of life, passed on from parents to children since the day of Avraham and Sarah, can only be sustained through the Jewish family. And knowing this, it is to choose to continue it by creating a Jewish home and having Jewish children. Now the reason I brought up that passage, I think it's very relevant to the topic that Rabbi Sachs talks about in this week's essay, which essentially is the topic of Shabbos. So to go into the meat of the essay, the Rabbi Sachs talks about the first time the Torah was translated from Hebrew into another language, it was actually translated into Greek around the 2nd century BCE, and that was in Egypt, which was run uh, by uh, under, the em- under the reign of Ptolemy II. And this Greek translation was known as the Septuagint because it was done by a team of 70 uh, rabbis. The Talmud actually goes into a, uh, a story about how this actually occurred where these Rabbanim were actually separated in isolated rooms and were told by the king essentially to translate the Torah into Greek. And miraculously, they all translated the Torah into identical Greek. Uh, so that's uh, recognized as a miracle. But during that translation, what was interesting is some aspects of the translation from Hebrew to Greek were deliberately mistranslated. And one of the texts which Rabbi Sachs talks about is actually mentioned in the Tractate of Gemara that is currently be stu- currently studying Tractate Megillah as part of the Dafiomi cycle where people learn a page of Gemara each day. It's a seven and seven and a half year cycle. And they happen to be studying this, this tractate at this time. But in that tractate of Gemara, uh, Megillah explains where 
in the Torah, it says, on the seventh day, God finished all the work he had made. But the translators actually wrote, when they translated to Greek, on the sixth day, God finished. So why, so why did, was there a need for the rabbis to translate this into Greek in such a way? And it's because the, the Greeks wouldn't understand it in the original translation. So essentially, it wouldn't make sense to the Greeks that on the seventh day, God finished all his work. Because what happened on the seventh day? Well, the seventh day was the Sabbath, was Shabbat, the day of rest. And for the Greeks, they couldn't understand how that seventh day, the day of rest, is part of the work of creation. What's creative about resting? What's achieved by not making, not working, not inventing? This idea was foreign to the Greeks. And there's independent evidence of Greek writing during that period in which they actually ridiculed Judaism for the Shabbat, where they criticized the Jews for taking one day off where they could have been much more productive. And it's interesting that soon after this time, Greek civilization actually came crumbling down and the Romans became the next major empire. So while the Greeks are criticizing the Jews for keeping Shabbos when you can be much more productive, the Jews, by taking a day off, were demonstrating how, no, you you don't have to be all in. You can take a time to reflect. You can avoid burnout. And the flames of Judaism lasted far longer than the Greek Empire in the end. As Ahad Ha'am once said, more than the Jewish people has kept Shabbat, Shabbat has kept the Jewish people. So rest one day in seven and you won't burn out. And this is the reason why I brought uh, the topic of Rabbi Saxon's book about Jewish continuity up because I do think that the concept of Shabbos is crucial to creating a link in a family and to, to keep the flame of Judaism going. So how, how, how do we come up with Shabbos in this week's Parsha? This is actually the first time in this week's Parsha where Shabbos is mentioned. And if you look at history of civilization prior to Judaism, people measured time either by the sun with a solar calendar of 365 days or by the moon through months of roughly 30 days. Now, the Muslims have a lunar calendar. Uh, the Roman calendar was a solar calendar. Interestingly, the Jewish calendar is a mixed solar and lunar calendar. Um, so we're kind of a combination of both. And we do that because that's the only way we can keep all our seasons in the right season. If you look at the... Um, keep our months in the right time of year. So, for example to make sure that uh, Passover always happens in the spring. If you look at the Muslim current, uh, calendar, because it's solely lunar, uh, Ramadan, for example, fluctuates throughout the entire year and isn't in one particular season. And that wouldn't do well with uh, the Jewish holiday structure. So we're a mix of a solar and lunar calendar. But the idea of going from a, a yearly calendar or a monthly calendar to a seven-day cycle a week that has no counterpart in nature. There's no, you, you can see the moon turn over every month. You can see the seasons every year change, but there's no real concept of a week of a seven day period in nature. That concept comes out of the Torah, but it's spread throughout the world through Christianity and Islam, both of which borrowed it from Judaism and uh, essentially created their own Shabbat, 
for Christians on Sunday and for the Muslims on Friday, but it really all comes from uh, the Jewish concept. So while we have um, years because of the sun and, and months because of the moon, we have the idea of weeks because of the Jews. Now, what does Shabbos actually do? Well, it creates space in our lives and our society uh, to keep us truly free, free from the pressures of work, free from the demands of employers, uh, free from a consumer society that's always requiring us to be in the marketplace. I was just thinking about um, some of the federal holidays. My, my wife's a teacher, and she was explaining to her class what the federal holidays were and what was the significance of them, and I joked afterwards, well, don't mention it's also a shopping day. So, you know, uh, we, you know, our, our, while our um, civil holidays are our day of shopping at times, uh, our Jewish holidays are a time of, uh, of reflection and removing ourselves from consumer society, and particularly Shabbos, where we're not even allowed to handle money. So if you look at um, this week's Parsha being in Exodus, the, you know, the Jews are leaving the slavery of Pharaoh. And in Moses' time, this was, a, this was freedom of slavery. Essentially, you can't have Shabbos until you're a free person. You're not under the uh, direction of the Egyptian overlords. But the concept of Shabbos is a concept that resonates in all eras. In the 19th and 20th century, it's freedom from sweatshops and difficult working conditions for poor pay. And in our own time, it's, it takes on a new aspect of freedom from email, smartphones, and the demands of a 24-7 society. I like to say I'm available 24-6, so um, we have to set a time away where we're not easily available for everybody. So what Aparsha tells us is that Shabbat was among the first commands the Israelites actually received on leaving Egypt. They com complained about a lack of food and God sent them manna from heaven, but they were told not to gather it on the seventh day. Instead, they would get a double portion on the on the sixth. And those who you know who who tried to um, gather on on Shabbat, the the um, uh, well, there, there was any and got they were told to only get, gather what they needed for the next day. But on Shabbat, they would have a double portion, and it would be preserved if they try to get extra on other days. Uh, it would it would um, rot, and that's actually why we have two challahs on Shabbat to remind us of the double portion of manna that we got on the eve of Shabbos. So, if you look at Shabbos, not only is it culturally unique, but conceptually as well. Um, it's it's really um, throughout history, people have identified with. Uh, a goal of an ideal world and a utopia, which actually comes from Greek. Uh, utopia comes from O meaning no, O-U, and topos, which means place. So the idea of a utopia being no place or an ideal place that doesn't really exist um, because the dream of a perfect society never really comes to fruition. But that's not really the case with Shabbos. What Shabbos is is a utopia now. It's a place where there's no hierarchies, no employers, no employees, no buyers and sellers, no inequality of wealth and power, no production. Uh, as Rabbi Sachs mentioned, it's, quote, the still point of the turning world. And God wanted the Israelites to begin their 
their one day in seven rehearsal of freedom almost as soon as they left Egypt. Because real freedom actually takes time to develop. If you look at the concept of slavery, while slavery was acknowledged in the Torah as legal, uh, based on the way the Torah treats slavery, it's clear that the Torah does not encourage slavery and it could be looked at as wrong. But it wasn't abolished because the people weren't ready for it. And if you look at that, it's, you know, when people criticize the Torah for not being, um, um, for being antiquated or not reflecting modern ideals, I mean, you could see considering it's 3,500 years old, it is well ahead of its time. I mean, it took England and America up to the 19th century before they were able to stop slavery, and that was without a uh, civil, at least in case the United States, a civil war that cost millions of, of casualties. So, regardless, the, the, the commandment of Shabbat was the first step in a long chain through uh, releasing the human spirit from slavery. Essentially, as we leave Egypt, we're coming into the desert, then we're acknowledging this concept, which is completely novel to the world, the concept of one day arrest every week that reflects uh, God's intention all along when he established uh, the world in a seven-day period. Rabbi Sachs goes on to talk about how the human spirit needs time to breathe, to inhale, to grow. And one of the crucial uh, rules in time management is the need to distinguish between those matters that are important and those that are urgent. Uh, Stephen Covey in his Seven Habits of Highly Effective People talks about this. And if you're constantly being... um, if you're constantly dealing with urgent issues, you can never get to the issues that are truly important. And those important issues are where we meet happiness and get a sense of a life well lived. And Shabbat is that time, the time dedicated to things that are important, but not necessarily urgent. They're not caught up in our in a time-driven world. It's a time for us to be with family, friends, community, a time to reflect, a time to pray, to be appreciative for what we have in life, for us to uh, listen to our to- our weekly Torah reading and remember the long story of our people and, it, and our journey to our uh, th- uh, out of Egypt. Shabbat's when we celebrate Shalom Bayis, the peace that comes from love and lives in the home where we're blessed by the Shekhinah, the, the divine presence of God, who we can feel at our dinner table on Friday night, among the candlelight, the wine, and special challah bread. And this isn't, the masterpiece of the Shabbos table isn't something that's that's um, something we read about, it's something we create, and we create the new each week. So the ancient Greeks could not understand how a day of rest could be part of creation. If we go back to the, what we talked about in the beginning of this essay, again, the Torah was translated into Greek with the idea that God rested on the sixth day because they couldn't understand that God, by creating a Sabbath, his work wasn't done until that seventh day was complete, until the concept of Shabbos was ingrained in us. For without rest for the body, peace for the mind, silence for the soul, and a renewal of our bonds of identity and love, the creative process withers and dies. 
And that's what what Shabbos is all about. When you look at all the intricate laws of Shabbos, really the foundational principle is that we're to avoid creative work. And by not creating anything, we complete the creative process. We complete what we have created over the course of the preceding six days. So the Jewish people, unlike the Greek empire, didn't lose energy over time. It remains as vital and creative today as it ever was. And the reason the Shabbos, which is humanity's greatest source for renewable energy, the day that gives us the strength to keep on creating. And when I was uh, with my family on vacation over the last couple of weeks, I was actually in Greece and Rome. So I had a chance to tour the ruins of some of the greatest empires ever known in the face of the earth. And what I looked at as I looked at all these monumental structures built thousands of years ago, which are now slowly crumbling over, over the, the stress of time. And I thought to myself, imagine all the work that was put in to these monuments and all the labor and expense and material involved. And what ultimately is the lasting impact of those monuments? I mean, what we're looking at today is we're, we're, we're looking at a thing of the past, but what is a living heritage and reminder of these civilizations? Um, while certainly there's, there's things we could learn from the Greek or Roman Empire, uh, you know, there's, there's nothing living about it. It's, it's, it's in the past. But if you think about the Jewish journey, which really got going with the exodus out of Egypt, which we learned about this week, and we go back to that, that empire, that journey that's passed from family to family that lives in the hearts and minds of the Jewish people and not in monuments, that legacy continues to this day. And again, going back to what keeps it, What's the source of Jewish continuity? Well, the source of Jewish continuity in Rabbi Sachs's book was education. Education so we're informed about our heritage. And I would add that it's also the effort to remember Shabbos throughout the ages to keep that connection that was first mentioned in the opening chapters of the book of creation, that the world wasn't complete until the seventh day. So I hope everyone has a great week and talk to you soon.